Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, UBCM delegates endorse tying traffic fines to incomes. Will the province allow it? Plus, why have the repair costs for the North Shore wastewater treatment plant ballooned from $1 billion to $4 billion? We look into the financial ticking time bomb. And the travels of Dev. We speak to Dev Solanke, a Canadian who's driving from Vancouver to India. We catch up with him in Iran. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. gathering of municipal officials at the UBCM uh, convention came to an end today. Premier Eby spoke at the event. Uh, many resolutions were discussed and debated as they always are uh, and sometimes those conversations be- can be quite heated. Now one of the um, resolutions that didn't get a lot of coverage but I think is very interesting to, to many people is the U.S. Minister was ad- advocating for tying traffic fines uh, to income. Well, joining me now is Patrick Johnston, the Mayor of New Westminster, to talk a little bit about uh, tying traffic fines to income. Uh, Your Worship, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you, Giles. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So uh, walk me through, uh, you introduced the, uh, the resolution as a community, I guess. How, how was it received? Um, uh, surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, it was received very quickly. There wasn't a lot of opposition at the floor. And uh, yeah, the delegates in, at UBCM voted to support it and to endorse it. Endorse it. Now, maybe not surprising because, I mean, this is an item that actually there was a research co-poll done on this summer and 70% of people in British Columbia support this idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, currently in BC, I think penalties for driving violations um, are, you know, range from $138 to $483 uh, for speeding and $167 for driving through a red light. Um, shouldn't we be focusing on bad drivers regardless of income? Oh, I think we should always be focusing on bad drivers. But I mean, when our only when the, the only path we have to enforce this is to is to apply fines. Um, clearly, it's an inequitable system where a person, a working person who just needs to drive to get to work because transit isn't available to them, you know, a four hundred dollar fine for them when they make a mistake on the road uh, can be life changing. You know, it can it can really take away from their ability to pay their basic their basic needs for a week. Whereas a person who's really wealthy uh, gets the same fine, they don't even worry about it. That's just the cost of doing business for them. Mm-hmm. So I think that as long as your fines are inequitable like that, I mean, fundamentally, if you're wealthy enough, you can buy yourself out of the justice system. Hmm. So I think there's a lot of room to find some equity in there. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, what countries use the system that you're recommending in regards to uh, a means tested for traffic, tra- for traffic fines? Yeah, there's a variety of different systems. Um, there are countries, I mean, a bunch of countries in Europe do this. Sweden, Finland does this. Costa Rica does this. There's, and there are places around the world that have been doing this for like 30 or 40 years. It's not a new idea at all. Um, it's, uh, it's become very prominent, I think, in the Nordic countries especially as part of the Vision Zero idea. Um, the Nordic countries have the, have the safest roads in the world, um, plain and simple. Uh, we, uh, a city the size of uh, a city like Oslo is the same size generally as Metro Vancouver, and they, on most years, they don't have any pedestrian deaths in their city. You know, and part of that is the road built, roads they build. A part of it is the way they do progressive enforcement and the way they make sure that if you 
break the law in a way that endangers other people, your the penalty means something to you. Hmm. Uh, and in this case now, the resolution was passed by UBCM and its members. Um, the Motor Vehicle Act is still, um, uh, you know, regulates our province, which is provincial. What happens next then? Yeah, so this would, of course, the Motor Vehicle Act doesn't change. That just says what the laws are. There's actually a different, a different regulation in the province that sets what the fines are for different, for different violations of the law. So, I mean, really, we just had the members of the UBCM have asked the province to explore this opportunity. So it'll be up to the province, it'll be up to the Solicitor General um, to, to decide whether they want to explore this as an idea, and they'll have to work out some of the implementation issues. I don't think it's a simple thing to implement, but I do think it's a possible thing to implement. Yeah, and when, when I was just thinking, uh, it still means when you get hit with a fine that that police officer would still have access to your income or how, I mean, I guess it would be, no. the, the, you, you would be told you're going to be fined and maybe you get a ticket later because somebody, yeah. somebody would have to acts, have access to your income data. So, so fines are set by the court. They're not set by the police officer who's sitting in front of you. What the police officer does right now is he just writes down the, you know, the, the violation you've done. Yep. Now, a lot of the violations we are done right now have a fixed fine attached to them. So they're able to tell you at that time what it's cost. But ultimately, they don't make that decision. Ultimately, you can always go to court and argue about that fine. So it's important to note that the fines are provided by the court system, not by the police officer who is charging you on the roadside. So the officer on the roadside doesn't need to know your income. They don't have to worry about that work. Um, that will all be determined through the court system. So in this case, you would be hit with a, spa, uh, let's say, a fine. Let's say you're going 20 kilometers over the speed limit. You're told you're going to get a fine. This would go into some sort of data bank. An assessment is made on what the charge for that would be. The system itself in the back end would have access to your income, obviously with privacy protection, and then you get a fine mailed to you or emailed to you or something of that sort. Yeah, it varies depending on jurisdiction that does this type of action, and they all vary because every country has different privacy rules and different ways of, or different levels of government to manage different types of your privacy. So we need a made in BC solution here that works within our privacy laws and works within our our existing jurisdictions. And just to confirm, no other no other jurisdiction in Canada has this at this point? No, not that I know of, no. Okay. Well, it, it seems interesting, and as you say, there was a poll done earlier with Research Co. with the 70% uh, support. Uh, I think generally when people get the details, they would be supportive of this, and it sounds like a, a pretty good idea. Uh, let's see if uh, the provincial government moves on this as well. Um, yeah. Mayor Johnson, thank you so much for your time. I'm sure you had a very busy week at UBCM, and you're probably looking for some uh, downtime this weekend, so thank you so much uh, for I, your time. I'd be lying if I didn't say I was exhausted. I... <laughs> <laughs> Too many meetings. How many meetings? Can you can you actually uh, count how many meetings you went to? I'm just curious. Uh, no, I mean, but it's, it's not just the meetings. It's the networking. It's also the you know the constant sessions. I mean, you're there from seven o'clock in the morning until seven or eight o'clock at night every night, and and there may be a beer at seven o'clock as well. So um, that at night, not in the morning. No, so, you know, not. It, it, the schedule just catches up to you. You know, after after a week of doing that work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Thank you very much. You too. All right, let's focus on our next segment here. Now, earlier this month, we introduced you to a gentleman named Dave of uh, named Dev Solanke. Now, Dev loves to travel, and he wanted to go back to his native India. Now, Dev lives in London, Ontario. Uh, he has lived in Canada um, not too long, under a decade, but recently he quit his job because he did want to take a big trip. Um, and you would think, hey, if you're going to go to India, why not just go direct from Toronto or Vancouver to New Delhi? Perhaps right now, without visa, it would be a very difficult uh, but he wanted to do so. 
Well, what he did is, well, he quit his job, as I said, uh, traveled to Vancouver, and he decided he was going to drive to India. Now, earlier this month, we caught up with him in Istanbul, Turkey. So he went from Vancouver to all the way to the East Coast, shipped his vehicle to England, and from there picked it up, and then has been traveling through Europe. And we caught up with him earlier this month, as I said, in Istanbul. Uh, he, in total, wants to travel through three continents, and will have traveled through 20, uh, travel 27,000 kilometers in his journey. Well, we caught up with him today, and he has reached Tehran, Iran. Yes, in Tehran. He is there today, and I told him that uh, we wanted to catch up with him, and he joins us now. Dev, thank you for speaking to us today. It's my pleasure, Just. So tell me, uh, you are in Tehran. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? Oh, it's a wonderful city. Like, Tehran is so huge, and it's very densely populated. Uh, it's a great city to walk around and to take cab. It's very cheap, so you won't be even feeling that you're spending that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything that is uh, in your early stages in, in Tehran, um, anything that has stuck out for you? Not really, uh, just the language barrier, but uh, wherever I have traveled, like uh, any restaurant, anywhere, like some someone from the restaurant, from the staff, they do know English, so it's absolutely fine. And is there a particular tourist site or anything that you really so far have really enjoyed? We went to the tower. Uh, there's a Galato something Galato tower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's there's a big monument over here. Let me just get you the name exact name. Well, you I know, was there today. Uh huh. Okay. And yeah. uh, just in regards to when when you first entered Iran, I'm just curious. Uh, through Turkey, I think it was. You were going through Turkey? Yes, yes. We entered via Turkey. And was there any sort of hesitation, nervousness going into Iran at that time? Not really. Like, it was just a normal, uh, like, a border crossing, but it was too uh, dense. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would say the infrastructure from the Turkey side was a little better. Like, when you enter the eastern side from a western side, there's a, a, like, a change, Mm -hmm. an instant change. Yeah, I could actually feel that uh, people were just jumping onto each other. You might have seen one of my uh, reels, like uh, I've posted, like people are jumping to just get into the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and w- did you have any difficulty getting a visa into Iran? No, 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 absolutely not. Like we got the visa, we got the online approval uh, in Can- when we were in, uh, I think we were in Switzerland. So I applied and it got instantly approved. After that, we went to the... Uh, consulate in uh, Turkey so they they approved us uh, within an hour and was there any questions in regards to the fact that you're driving from Canada all the way to India oh my god they were they were so happy like they were very keen to know the stories and everything so we ended up talking uh, 15 minutes and uh, yeah it was really nice like they were they were really happy that we are doing this amazing trip Wow. So uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners want to know, what, what kind of vehicle are you driving? And have you had any mechanical challenges along the way? Uh, I'm driving a Range Rover Velar, and uh, it's perfectly fine up till now. Uh, we haven't had any issues with the car. We just did an oil change in uh, Spain, and then after that, uh, it's working really fine. Mm-hmm. And was there a conscious decision to go with a Range Rover, or was it just uh, somebody owned one, or did you guys specifically pick that, that vehicle? 
No, no, no. We we already had this vehicle uh, with us, so we just decided to take this one with us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I'm I'm curious now. Uh, how much time are you going to be spending in Iran? Uh, we have already uh, spent uh, four days in Iran and uh, four more days in Iran. And are you going to other other locations, other other parts of the country? Yes, this is my third location, and after that, I will be going to Ishfana. And then from there, heading towards the uh, border side, there's another small town, like not a small, like a major town of uh, Iran. It's it's called Karman. So from Karman, we will be heading towards the border uh, and into the Pakistan region. Now, are you concerned at all? Because the border regions of Pakistan some kind, sometimes can be a bit of a challenge. Um, is there any sort of precautions you're taking for security or do you think that's going to be fine? So in Pakistan, uh, the Baluchistan region, uh, that's a bit of uh, conflicting region. Mm-hmm. But for that, Pakistan is actually going to provide us with escort. How did you manage so an escort that, from Pakistan? <laughs> no, so it's it's like a mandatory thing. Like if you if you are an international tourist, so they will give you an ex, uh, an escort which goes from police station to the next police station. Mm-hmm. So that thousand kilometers can take up to uh, three days to seven days. Wow. Like they're not sure. Yeah, yeah. That that part is a bit sketchy, and they're not sure like how much time it will gonna take us to cross that part. But you get, but they do provide you with a police escort. Yes, yes. They will be providing us four gunmen, and they will be in their own vehicle, so they will uh, help us cross because uh, there's no gas station, so everything is uh, like we have to arrange from locals. Oh, okay, okay. Now I'm I'm very much interested. As you know, we've have some um, tense moments between India and Canada. Uh, some di- yeah. a diplomatic spat, um, you know, serious allegations. And one of the things they've said is that uh, Canadians cannot apply for uh, an Indian visa at this point. And lots of Indians, of course, Canadians of Indian heritage travel this time of the year uh, back to the home country. Have you already had your visa approved or is this going to be a challenge for you now? Yes, we, we already got the visas approved and uh, it's absolutely fine for us because they're not issuing a new visa mm-hmm. and they haven't uh, set for the existing visa so i think we will be fine and and what border are you are you going to be uh, dropping in on is it is it is a southern pakistan or are you going through Athari, which is the northern the the northern one of the northern border crossings the atari border atari Baga border yeah. so we will be crossing that the uh, when you talk about uh, going into uh, pakistan we will be taking the Taftan border okay and have you gone through the the Pakistan Indian border there at, at the Athara Wagga crossing, which of course put, takes you right into Punjab and very close to uh, the holy city of Amritsar? Uh, have you gone through that border yeah. crossing before? Yes, yes. There one time, like uh, this is a uh, Gurdwara, so we went there when okay. we were in India. Wow! And when does your trip wrap up? It's gonna wrap up the moment we reach uh, New Delhi. I'm hoping next two weeks. And is it back to Canada, or are you planning to spend some time in India? Uh, we are actually planning to spend some time, uh, like uh, maybe three weeks in uh, India, and then heading back heading to back. Canada. And uh, you had yes. mentioned to me in the last time we chatted, uh, when you were uh, in Turkey, uh, that you quit your job to do this. Does that mean you get back to regular life once once you're back in Canada and start looking for work? Uh, I'm actually not thinking. <laughs> <laughs> you're not thinking of work. No. Nah, 
yeah, nine to five is not for me anymore because once you get a hang of traveling and making content and doing all those things, like this is this is the actual life when you when you talk and when you meet meet like so many different people, so many different cultures. I'm loving this lifestyle. And is this you think you hope to turn um, your travels into a a full time job uh, on social media? Then yes, yes, that's the whole plan for now. And is it working? Are you picking up followers? Oh yes, it's it's actually growing. Uh, it's very steady growth, but I'm pretty sure that uh, uh, like once we reach India, it's gonna blow up because India, Pakistan, they have this. They speak the same language, and we are originally from there. So yeah, there, there's gonna be a touch where we can actually expect a lot of increase in uh, followers and all those things. Well, there you go. Well, there you go. You you quit your job uh, and you are traveling from Vancouver to New Delhi, India. And hopefully along the way, uh, that career takes off for you as well, because uh, I think everybody dreams one day of just traveling uh, permanently and, and full time like you are. So it takes a lot of guts to do what you're doing. Really appreciate your time. Uh, be good and be safe. And uh, perhaps we'll catch up with you um, uh, when you're in Pakistan or as you're, as, as you're entering India. And uh, look forward to chatting with you soon again. Definitely. Thank you so much, Josh. Welcome back to the show. Well, in March of 2022, uh, we learned of a Spanish company, Asiona uh, Wastewater Solutions. They were uh, hired uh, previous to that to help um, work on the North Shore Wastewater Treatment Plant. Now, we learned in March of 2022 that the company was suing Metro Vancouver. Now, the company claimed that it wasn't responsible for most of the 1,000 plus modifications made to the original project. Um, which, of course, caused delays, and it also pushed the budget at that time to $1 billion. Well, the other day, there was a column in the North Shore News written by Kirk LaPointe, who was a publisher and executive editor for Business in Vancouver. And Mr. LaPointe, um, through his contact, says uh, that that cost for that North Shore uh, wastewater treatment facility could move, the cost could move from $1 billion to $4 billion. Joining me now to talk about the issue is Kirk LaPointe himself. Kirk, thank you for joining us today. Good afternoon, Jeff. Good afternoon. So walk me through uh, about the project itself and, and what you've been hearing in regards to this significant increase, potential increase for this project. Well, what my sources told me uh, was that there was a meeting about a week and a half ago um, in which the three uh, North Shore mayors were invited. Uh, one of them uh, showed uh, Mike Little of the District of North Vancouver, the other two sent uh, sent delegates, and it was a, a briefing. It was um, the best uh, briefing I think that any of them have had in terms of clarity on costs. And the costs uh, are pretty staggering. Uh, they, I think, it, it surprised, shocked everybody. It was that high. Um, it obviously has some implications right away uh, for residents of North uh, of, of uh, the North Shore and Metro Vancouver. I think is on the hook uh, for about 45 percent of um, of the project, and so you you know you're going to see if you know if my sources are correct, and and uh, if there aren't any further modifications to perhaps curtail the project, uh, you're going to see you know some pretty serious um, increases in terms of uh, taxation. Uh, for for residents in order to pay for this, uh, have you uh, received any sort of indication as to why the costs have been escalating? I, mean, I think originally it was five hundred million, then it moved to a billion, and we've got this litigation going on. And now, uh, through your reporting, it says four billion dollars. Any sense of what's causing this? 
um, there's a little bit of uh, a modification to the project, as I understand it. We haven't really been uh, told clearly about what that is. Um, and you're dealing with, you know, you're dealing with conveyances that go quite some distance. And let's be honest, I mean, the, you know, the wastewater treatment in this is largely dealing with infrastructure that is among the most expensive anywhere. Uh, and that has a lot to do with the fact that the North Shore is built on a slope. And uh, costs, you know, the infrastructure costs are significantly higher than places like, say, Richmond, where it's flat land. Um, mm-hmm. So you've got uh, you've got that kind of premium on it. And what was clear too is that uh, you know, the new uh, contractor on this has to essentially dismantle a lot of what the previous contractor had. So there there is you know there is some dismantling and redoing. Uh, you know you're taking it down. I think. Uh, you know, as a homeowner would think, uh, taking it down to the studs and maybe below that. Mm. Um, so it's it is going to be um, a project that will take more time, cost more money, in, in largely in measure because it's it's a bit of a do over. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so a four billion dollar potential cost, forty five percent you say you've said for other Metro Vancouver taxpayers. So that's just under two billion dollars. Uh, two billion dollars for North Shore residents is astronomical. Uh, for any municipal government, even three municipal governments, uh, yeah. one would assume you'd have to go with a bit of a begging bowl in hand to go to Victoria and Ottawa and say, we can't do this on our own. You guys are going to have to step in. Yeah, because you're you're really looking, if you had to try to do the math on this one, uh, and, and believe me, the math was done at this meeting for people, it's about $400 a year uh, in additional uh, additional tax for people just to pay for this. And that's over a period of quite a few years. Um, so what you're dealing with there is, yes, uh, I, I suspect that one of the moves that will be there, the mayors won't take terribly much time to go to Victoria and go to Ottawa and say, you know, you're expecting us to densify our communities. Uh, that requires uh, stronger infrastructure, certainly wastewater um, is, is part of that uh, infrastructure. And um, we, we need more help than what you've so far indicated. Mm-hmm. Um it is surprising, isn't it, that, the, that the, we haven't talked about this publicly. Uh, you know, there have been some stories, and your, your reporting certainly moves the story forward. But in regards to a public discourse on that plant itself, a lot of it is just seems to be behind curtains here, and no elected official in any meaningful way uh, has, in, in, you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, informed citizens in regards to what's going on. Well, the elected officials are going to have to stick their necks out pretty soon uh, because. Largely, the, once the public begins to understand that, my sense is that the phone calls and emails will start coming in. You know, it is, though, as you know, Jazz, emblematic of one of the problems that we have here in our area with a regional government like Metro Vancouver, which isn't directly elected. You know, mayors uh, or mayors appointees put themselves on the Metro Vancouver board after they're all in turn, you know, having been elected uh, in their own communities, and so. You know, the, the result at times, and I'm not trying to disparage any of the mayors, but at times, they, you know, is, is that Metro Vancouver adds a fairly significant amount of workload to them, and it's not their prime interest. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in a lot of cases, they're dealing with issues that involve other communities, not their own. And and I think in a lot of ways, what, what a lot of people have said is that we really ought to have directly elected officials who take into account the region and what they're doing and not just try to bring some of the more parochial individual community uh, uh, interests uh, to the fore at this thing. And, you know, many other jurisdictions, uh, you know, have regional governments in this country. And uh, this 
this kind of escalating cost of infrastructure, uh, it, it really it, it amounts to some of the largest projects that all of our municipalities are dealing with. And, you, you know, you might want to have more directly accountable people uh, having to decide upon it. Yeah, I think that you raise a very uh, good point there. And, you know, finally, uh, another point you raise, I think it's important, it's not just wastewater for the North Shore, it's just water potentially for the for, the, for uh, Metro Vancouver already where, uh, you know, we've got uh, bans in the summer uh, in regards to watering lawns, all those sort of things. Deep, deep in- infrastructure, physical infrastructure that we need in our city it will all have to be expanded as we're being asked to densify another million people moving here over the next, um, you know, 25 years or so. All of that's going to require significant new dollars. It's going to require significant new dollars. And I think it's also going to require the public to pay a little closer attention to infrastructure. As you know, these are not glamorous issues. You know, people don't get elected on the basis of promising a great new wastewater plant. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's one of the, you know, basic requirements of government that it looks after this but there are a lot of other issues that are far sexier for someone to run for mayor or council on and uh, but I, I think we're going to see that a lot of these you know somewhat deadly dull types of issues take on a, a far greater significance because they're going to be huge in terms of their tax on the public purse yeah absolutely kirk thank you so much for your time today have yourself a wonderful weekend you too jess thanks for having me on we spent a lot of time uh, during the first hour talking about um, a new resolution from UBCM introduced by New Westminster, which uh, basically stated that, um, you know, speeding tickets or all traffic tickets should be based on your income. The higher the income, the higher the fine, the lower the income, uh, lower the fine. Um, but that's only an issue when it comes to driving. Uh, there's a new poll out, and I'm joined by Jerry Mayer Judson, our show contributor. Uh, and this uh, this uh, poll is looking at whether or not uh, Vancouver is a good place to drive. Yes. So it's, uh, it's a study done by Research Co. And it was kind of more Canada-wide. Of course, it's relevant in Vancouver because here is where we sit. We look at the roads all the time. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, so 46% of Canadians believe that drivers in their respective cities mm-hmm. or slash towns um, are worse than five years ago, even though we can't maybe point out five incidents that we've seen or five separate infractions. Mm-hmm. We still believe almost half of us believe that uh, drivers are worse. I could see that. I could see yep. it. If, we, if, yep. you, if you think you, if you think of maybe... Um Technology and distracted driving. Exactly. Uh, just more drive. I mean, during COVID, probably less. But generally speaking, every year we had more vehicles on the mm-hmm. road. More maybe people. We're all moving. rusty since uh, we all had a <laughs> break during COVID. But I, yeah, <laughs> Mario Kensenko, he's the president of Research Co. He was on the Jill Bennett show earlier today with guest host Rob Fay, and uh, he can probably explain it better than I can. And we had a moment during the pandemic when the numbers were starting to trend in the right direction. We had 44% of Canadians who said things are about the same. 39% who told us it was worse. It dropped to 30% in 2021. So we had only 3 out of 10 Canadians who said, yeah, drivers are getting worse. Now that we're much later in in life uh, and we have left COVID-19 behind us, the numbers are back to where they used to be. Practically half of Canadians telling us last year or this year that the drivers in their city or town are worse than they were five years ago. So we had a bit of a pandemic bump. 
Uh, I can see that. I mean, just like uh, vacations and people traveling, we're, we're, we, we want to travel. We're out more on the road as well. This is true. Right? And I think, was it last year we added, was it 100,000 people in BC? More, most of them probably moved to Vancouver. Yeah, yes. Right? So that's more people, more mm-hmm. vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like we uh, are not living in a 24-7 world either. Like, we're always in a rush. This is very true. I uh, One of the interesting statistics in the study that stood out to me uh, that I can relate to is that 59% overall saw somebody not signal prior to changing lanes. That is an infuriating infraction. But yes. what's funny too is in um, it was 66% of Albertan respondents said that they had... So 59 versus 66. And I'm like, that's true, actually. I don't ever believe it when someone just ha- doesn't have their signal light on because yeah. that's where I got most of my driving experience was in Alberta and... Uh, I, I, I never trust anybody who doesn't have their signal on them. Like they could change lanes at any moment and yeah. I'm not going to, I will be <laughs> cut off. I know that I will. So but moving here, I've, I've never been cut off actually. It's been really nice. Really? I've never so, been cut off on purpose. So just subjectively uh, with, with, with whatever driving you've done mm-hmm. here in Vancouver so far, who are the worst drivers, Calgarians or Vancouverites? I've discussed this at length, actually, um, in my social life. And it's worse in different ways. It's almost like... Albertans, I feel like they are so good at driving and they know the rules so well that they will negligently break them. They'll know, sorry, not negligently, they will knowingly break them. Yeah. And uh, it's they're bending the rules to drive worse. And it was predictable, I suppose. But yeah. here it kind of seems like they're negligent. I mean, <laughs> or maybe people, you know what I mean? It's just like you might not know that you're doing it wrong. So uh, it's it's been a learning curve. It is a challenge to drive in this city. I just mean, it, so. it, it really is, you know. And, and you know, we, yeah, we get made fun of, uh, especially when, when a, any, a bit of an interest snow falls in, in, and on the roads oh. <laughs> and those city shuts down. But generally, I would agree. I mean, maybe it's because we're a bit more tightly packed here compared to Calgary too, right? You yeah, the more lanes sprawl. are jarringly, the, the roads themselves are jarringly small here and you can't go very fast. So it's a different artery system. There's I, different driving I'll styles. parking downtown. Like, everything I is never have actually. Here. I'm like, it's, nope. <laughs> it's not worth, I mean, you just, sometimes when I go to the States and, uh, you know, you just, uh, you got to park your vehicle. It's just so nice where it's just like, oh, this is what a normal parking <laughs> wow, lot, parking space Wow, you know there's going to be like. space and it's all going to be flat. It's so nice. But, you, they, but they still make parking spaces there like, for actual vehicles. Imagine. And downtown here, boy, it's getting tighter and tighter. Never mind just getting downtown <laughs> and trying to drive around downtown. Um, even parking's uh, a challenge. So I can see that. I, in fact, I think it's going to get worse and worse. And I, I don't want to be a pessimist. I'm going to try to be an optimist, but I, I, I'm not going to hold my breath. We'll see. We'll see what Research Co. has to say maybe in the next five years. Who knows? Jerry, thank, thank you. Thank you. As you heard uh, during the major news at 5 and uh, press conference at 4.45 with um, the RCMP, there was a shooting this morning in the Coquitlam City Centre neighbourhood. An RCMP officer is dead and two Mounties uh, are wounded. Uh, There were reports that the incident happened um, this morning in a building at Pine Tree Way Way and Glen Drive while a search warrant was being executed. We learned uh, at 4.45 with a press conference um, from the Deputy Commissioner, uh, Dwayne uh, McDonald, that Ridge Meadows RCMP officer, Constable Rick O'Brien, uh, has passed away. He was 51 uh, with a wife and children. 
there were two other Mounties who were injured, one uh, who is now recovering at home. Uh, the other officer is still in hospital but with non-life-threatening injuries. Uh, Constable Rick O'Brien was 51 years old. He joined the RCMP in 2016. He's originally from Ottawa, uh, and he's only in his seventh year with the force. Uh, not too long ago, he was involved um, in rescuing a child uh, in regards to a child uh, home invasion, uh, and he received commendation from the commanding officer and the province as well. A huge struggle, of course, uh, for his family and the broader uh, law enforcement family uh, as well. And, of course, today's uh, tragic event uh, occurs uh, just uh, nearly uh, close to the one-year anniversary of the death of Constable Yang uh, as well. Well, joining me now to talk uh, a little bit about uh, today's incident, but the broader challenges uh, police officers, law enforcement officials, have to deal with is John Buse. He is a retired RCMP officer and uh, was a gunshot survivor as well. John, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me, Jeff. Um, let's start with um, the immediate events here. Um, just uh, what would you like to say in regards to what has transpired today in Coquitlam? Well, I, my heart and my prayers go to the family because this is an awful thing. This is a worst case scenario in a police officer's life and their family. So they're going through a lot right now, and uh, hopefully that uh, we can uh, we can help them through this tough period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, it's an incredibly difficult uh, period. Um, how many years did you spend in the force? I retired with 45 years service. 45 years service. In that time, you've seen a tremendous... Uh, change, um, not only in just the, the service itself, but, you know, change in society, change in policing. Um, how would you describe uh, policing when you left? Uh, and, you know, compare that to 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. Uh, it's changed. A number of things have changed, uh, particularly for me. I mean, I joined the RCMP before the big uh, C's, uh, computers, the charter and cell phones. And, but we still did police work, and people continue to do police work, even those uh, we've modernized. But society has changed. Although Canada, uh, you know, when it was settled or when European settlement occurred, everyone had firearms. Uh, it was part of what was a, a, the way people lived. Mm-hmm. The difference now is people may have firearms, but there are so many of the criminal element that have fire, firearms. And that's what's changed significantly for me. By the end of my service, yeah, there were far more firearms out there and people using them. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you don't have to wait into the political side of this. You know, there's always a constant issue around guns uh, and Mm -hmm. and, and lawful owners of guns who feel that, look, we're not the the folks you should be focusing on. It's the bad guys who are able to uh, exchange guns for drugs and vice versa. Um, Do you think there still needs to be greater emphasis put on uh, those who uh, acquire guns illegally, but also commit cr- crimes with a weapon? It is very difficult if there's no deterrent. And I don't see much of a deterrent if a person gets caught with a firearm. Uh, I understand that, you know, people should be given a chance, but once or twice caught with a firearm should mean uh, some severe penalties. Yeah. Um, can you speak to me a little bit, uh, when you look at, our cities today, particularly um, in a post-COVID environment. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we've been woken up to 
what our streets are like. And some would say, look, the, the, the pandemic exacerbated the issue, but it's not just a Vancouver issue. It's a Seattle issue. It's a Portland issue. It's a, a San Francisco issue. It's a Los Angeles issue all along the I-5. Um, that mental health and addiction, and I don't know the reasoning, what happened in this case. I don't know the person's demeanor, whoever was involved in this. We don't know. That will come out slowly. That is fine. But yes. we ask RCMP officers, we ask municipal police officers, deal with a street today beyond just the use of guns and the availability of illegal guns, you have a huge amount of people out there with mental health issues, addiction issues. I mean, I can only imagine what it's like for officers today working the streets. Well, it's much different from the, when I started, even though it's not that, you know, it's 45 years ago. But, you know, partway through the middle of my service, I noticed a big change. It was 1986, and I started seeing my first homeless people where before that, I never saw them. And what was uh, for me, it was uh, a learning experience because I did bring them to social services and they were assisted. But then the floodgates opened. And that's one of the big things that's changed. Police officers are now asked to be uh, social workers, psychologists, uh, you name it, because they're the ones on the street. And I think society needs to take a close look at this. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not a police officer that attends all these things. Maybe it's, maybe it's social workers or whatever it is. But uh, society has to take a look at that because one of the things that police officers bring to every call is a firearm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it may not be a good way to use our resources. Yeah. Um, so in regards to this, what do you think needs to happen to make our uh, to, to make the world a little safer for police officers, you can never make it 100% because it's the, the kind of work that they do uh, and we ask them to do. But would you, what would, are there any immediate changes you'd like to see if, you, if you, we could see other provincial or federal legislation uh, that would help police officers in regards to doing their job and making it easier and, more importantly, safer for them? Well, one of the big things that's coming up now is recruitment, and no matter what police force or emergency services or first responders. They just aren't the people that are going into these occupations. So uh, in the coming years, it's going to be more and more difficult to get people to join. And then what do you do when you get all these calls for service and not enough resources to handle them? That's one of the things that needs to have a close look at. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember in my early days, uh, I was a crime reporter for many, many years and interacted with uh, so many different police departments from across this country. Um, you know, and one of the things that officers would say sometimes to me is, you know, after Rodney King happened, uh, it, it, you know, it, made, it was tougher for police officers. And I'm just using that one incident. There could be others yeah, as well. Yeah. And it's an American, it's an American context and not necessarily Canadian or Vancouver. Uh, but, it, but there seems to be, and I'm not saying the police department shouldn't be accountable to the public, to elected officials. But it also seems to me when you watch that they somehow at times get vilified as the enemy, as if as if a paramilitary organization isn't one of us as a society. Um, do you think the broader social uh, conversation at times, the demand for social justice and a greater voice for minority communities, underserved communities, has also actually been just a pushback on police in the wrong and negative way? You know, sometimes police just get, you know, you, you're going to, you know, clean up, let's say, a protest or somebody's vandalizing something in the middle of a protest. You're the person between the window and the purpose, person perpetrating this, but you somehow get, you know, uh, you're viewed or shown as as the bad person. Well, in society nowadays, yes, that that may be more pr- 
prevalent than, say, when I started working. But that, that may be as a result of social media. It may be a result of a number of things, including living next door to, you know, to the United States with yeah. their policing issues that they've had. And I can't really say that what happens in the United States automatically happens in Canada. It's a different – we have a different uh, – system we have different laws we have all sorts of things that differentiate us but that border is uh, is pretty porous when it comes to not only criminals but firearms and i'm not sure i don't have the, the wherewithal to figure out how we stop the flow of firearms into canada because let's face it the the, the people that are in gangs are not necessarily going looking for police to hurt yeah but what they are doing is protecting themselves from say their their uh not enemies, but that they're people that they compete with. Yeah. And sometimes they don't know who is actually coming to get them, whether it's it's one of their, uh, their gang members, if it's somebody else trying to rip them off. So those are things that, um, those are really difficult to police. Yeah. How do you do that? Uh, because when you ask them, and I've heard these conversations, they don't want to hurt the police, but they just get into a situation where they don't know who is coming at the door or that they get feel trapped because of uh, what, whatever reason, and they react maybe because of the drugs they've been using or the lifestyle they've had. Well, John, uh, it's a very difficult day uh, for the law enforcement community. Uh, I I know it's tough. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time and take care of yourself. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.